New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring a unique period in Western history in the early 17th century known as the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. My guest is Dr. Betty Kovacs, who taught symbolic and mythic language for 25 years. She's served as the chair of the board of the directors of the Young Society of Claremont, California, and she sits on the academic advisory board of the Forever Family Foundation. Dr. Kovacs is author of Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World, which was the winner of the Scientific and Medical Network 2019 Book Prize, as well as a Nautilus Silver Award. And she has also written The Miracle of Death, There Is Nothing But Life. Betty is based in California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Betty. What a pleasure it is to be with you again. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. We'll be talking about a period in history known as the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. And I suppose it's useful to say right at the outset that the, the connection between the 17th century emerge, emergence of the Rosicrucians uh, is, it's questionable, uh, the relationship between modern Rosicrucian groups and what happened back then. Yes, I think there probably is a great difference, and we'll focus on what happened then, who they were. It's a very interesting uh, example of uh, uh, an enlightened period because it was so very brief, maybe 20, 30 years or so. Yes, about 20 years. But what had come before was everything. <laughs> they actually uh, had the high Middle Ages when, after several hundred years of suppression, when in the high Middle Ages, all so much of the underground tradition broke through and there was a tremendous enlightenment. And many scholars think that this is a continuation. The Rosicrucian Enlightenment is really a continuation of the High Middle Ages. And of course, Frances Yates, when she discovered it, and we need to know that nobody knew about this until Frances Yates was doing research at the Warburg Institute and started finding clues. And she said, I felt like an archaeologist digging, you know, layer by layer and uncovering a whole world. As she says, this exquisite, you know, a Renaissance culture that we knew nothing about. It had been so destroyed. And so she then felt that the Italian Renaissance had continued, that we saw in the Italian Renaissance that Pico and others really wanted to bring uh, Kabbalah and alchemy and Christianity together and all of the traditions together. And it just didn't work. The church was too powerful. But they that awakening period allowed these underground traditions to begin to emerge. And so by the 1600s, they really were flourishing in Bohemia, which was uh, ruled by Rudolf II, who was Catholic, but he was 
so interested in this underground tradition that they had freedom finally. Here was a, a paradise, you might say, that all of the, all the Jews, the Muslims, Christians could come together. The alchemists, the Kabbalists, this wasn't the first time that this had happened. And so it was a great time for Renaissance and everyone was hopeful. So there was, there were so many writers too who were alchemists. Alchemy had uh, gone underground for sure, but they had been very active and much more revealed in the 1500s. I think it's interesting that uh, Carl Jung has said that uh, alchemy existed along with Christianity and a kind of parallel development. Christianity was on the surface and Alchemy was underground, he said, for 17 centuries, and it was complementary to Christianity in that the feminine played an equal role, and they were actually Gnostic in that they were working to experience the Christ consciousness, to become that rather than to worship it. But we now know that it was more than 17 centuries because alchemy actually uh, was continuing in Egypt, southern uh, Egypt in Akhmim. And at that point, many of the other traditions came together. As the church became less and less tolerant, then they were coming together, clustering together. And it, it might be even because this is the time when everything comes together, it might be good just to look back at what we've been talking about in all of these interviews of this underground tradition, because people often speak of it as the occult or esoteric. It's not a sidebar to history. This is the foundation and the roots of who we are. And uh, when it finally emerged in the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers, Peter Kingsley makes it very clear. Look at this. These are the roots of Western culture we can say that have been severed. So just jumping back very quickly, we have the cave cultures and we have the megalithic cultures. And something that I didn't go into, but I do in my book is old Europe. We had no idea that old European culture even existed until Maria Gimbutas, who was a, a very well-known Bronze Age specialist, began to see there's a whole different symbolic system and in Eastern European artifacts going into Russia by the Black Sea, northwest of the Black Sea, taking part of Anatolia or Turkey, where the pre-Socratics were, and including Greece and Crete and Italy. Here was a world, again, for several thousand years that honored nature, had the labyrinth. They saw that she said it was such a joyful culture, and she found no evidence of war. And she showed the continuation of this old European symbolic system with the uh, uh, cave cultures. Uh, so, and it went into Russia. She didn't have a chance to go there, but I was there and an archaeology uh, friend of mine took me to the school where he taught and I was telling him, I just want to see these uh, upper Paleolithic images of the feminine. I want to see them. I know that they've been excavated. Well, so he took me into his office and he said, wait here just a minute. And then he came back with trays and he had those actual symbols in the trays and left them on the table and left me in the room alone with them. <laughs> that never happened here. But it was such an experience to see these 
exquisite symbols. And of course, they were very, they were totally in the tradition of the upper Paleolithic and old, uh, the Neolithic old Europe. So the, this was a, a powerful culture uh, of unity with nature. And we'll see that arise in Bohemia. Then, of course, then the great flowering of a megalithic culture in Egypt and probably the most profound uh spiritual tradition uh, that we have that that I know of and as it began to wane and go down into southern Egypt then all of these others there was of course the Jewish the first temple tradition and the Kabbalist and then the pre-Socratics that really informed classical Greece with Pythagoras who had studied 20 years in Egypt and been initiated and then he especially with Parmenides influenced Plato so here we have this tremendously powerful tradition that had existed for thousands of years. And now it's finally tried during the high middle ages and in the Italian, and now it's able to surface in a way that it never had before. And that's the Rosicrucian. An important link, I gather, is actually the uh, English Renaissance that occurred after the Italian Renaissance and uh, people like Shakespeare and John Dee were very important figures carrying the Hermetic tradition forward and even transferring it over to Bohemia. Absolutely. That's really important. And I didn't, there were <laughs> there were periods that I didn't write about. I thought, well, the English is better known, but you're absolutely right. And Shakespeare is called a troubadour <laughs> because it was the troubadours that carried this underground message during the high middle ages throughout Europe and inspired all of Europe. And it is said that many of these troubadours were initiated, but Yes, John D. after Elizabeth uh, died, people were in Europe were very worried. Will Will we be protected? They wanted uh, Protestant protection, not because they necessarily were Protestants, but because they could have more freedom under Protestantism than they could under Catholicism. But John Dee did go. He was in Bohemia before what we call the Rosicrucian uh, Enlightenment actually took place. He was very powerful in England uh, and also in Bohemia. is in other parts of Europe. But they've certainly prepared the place, you might say, in many ways. Is, is a, John Dee is a fascinating figure because he combined within himself uh, scientific knowledge. He was an excellent mathematician as well as uh, carrying forward the Hermetic tradition. Exactly. And Francis Yates makes it very clear that uh, this underground tradition actually studied nature mathematically, that they had given that approach to nature to the later scientists. And we'll certainly see that that is, that is true. Uh, because there was uh, a, a tradition of scientists that survived the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, and they even called themselves the Invisible College. And then finally, and they wanted to form a college, a university way of teaching uh, that would bring together uh, the science and uh, spirituality or enlightenment in terms of vision and, and actual experience with science in its most rigorous form. And they tried to do that, but the society that developed was uh, the Royal Society for the Study of Science in 1660, and it completely severed the visionary part, which was a great disappointment to the Invisible College of Scientists and Mystics. <laughs> 
Actually, to my knowledge, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, who who was one of the, uh, at one point, the president of the Royal Scientific Society, sort of carried on that tradition. He, in, in his alchemical writings that have now become uh, public, he, he, I wouldn't quite call him a mystic, but he did have a deep interest in alchemy. Many of them did, and many who were in Bohemia actually nurtured and fed into that society. And so there was that tradition that it was very hard to keep it developing or to have it as an overt part of what was going on. But at the time of the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, uh, scientists were hermeticists. For instance, Kepler and the person who worked with him in his calculations, they were hermeticists. So it's these things were not so much known later because no one dared talk about it. But, and Francis uh, Bacon also wrote uh, after the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, he knew what was going on because his new Atlantis actually uh, talks about the kind of uh, renaissance for the whole world and the kind of knowledge that they wanted to teach. His probably did focus more on uh, the scientific, but nevertheless, he had the merchants of light. Actually, he talks about in the New Atlantis, the merchants of light were very much the Rosy Cross Brotherhood, the Brethren of the Rosy Cross. And they were those who traveled around the world to enlighten the world with this new understanding that emerged in Bohemia that is both shamanistic, visionary, and uh, scientific. They really come together, uh, almost, <laughs> in Bohemia. The symbol of the rose and the cross is very interesting. I haven't until recently given it much thought, but they're so different. The cross is completely right angles, geometric, man-made, and the rose is completely organic. And when you bring the two of them together, it's as if you're creating a fusion of the opposites. Yes, I think certainly the cross is always a fusion of opposites. Um for those who are interested, you've already mentioned Francis Yates and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. That book is is absolutely necessary to understand the movement. But there is another one, which is the Rosicrucian Enlightenment Revisited. And there's several excellent authors in that book who continue to do that research. And Christopher Bamford speaks about the Rosy Cross. And he uh, describes it in the way that it is the bringing together of the individual nature, the laws that govern our individual development, and the laws of the earth, of nature, including the cosmos. When we bring those two together at the heart, it is heart consciousness, because the rose is a symbol of the heart, then that rose can unfold the petal by petal, and it is a love that goes beyond all dualities. And I've been so interested to know uh, that there were so many uh, groups of mystics in the High Middle Ages and continuing uh, into the Rosicrucian period, and these mystics were working individually on precisely that. It is a, a love that brings our 
own laws of nature in harmony with the laws of the earth and the cosmos. And that is like they are holding the blueprint for our development. And they know that it's at the heart that, that, that love is what opens the consciousness of the individual to the cosmos. And they would say in the high middle ages that Jesus and Mary's heart are one and they're one in my heart. And that means I'm synchronized with the heart of the cosmos. They understood that. Uh, and I think that is the power, really, of the of the entire movement. And in uh, the Egyptian uh, birth and uh, death and rebirth mysteries, it was the, the emphasis on the heart consciousness that uh, the initiate had to to love and desire and open that ability to feel because without feeling, they've said over and over, they knew that civilization could not unfold. And I was so delighted to see how uh, well that was understood in the high middle ages and into the Rosicrucian period. It's just phenomenal really that the emphasis on the heart and loving and going beyond dualities. They wanted to go beyond Catholicism and Protestantism, that there was a love that would dissolve those dualities. And when you look at human history, you see all of these wars and conflicts, particularly in that era where Protestants and Catholics were uh, slaughtering each other uh, when they could, uh, that it would take an enormous love to bring these competing forces together. It would, and it would take experience of living in that vision, you might say, and also understanding the world mathematically, scientifically. They, this is the whole mind. And it's, it's absolutely amazing that I did not know that in Bohemia that they were, they had a Protestant church long before Luther came about. And, and the Protestants allowed more freedom, would say this. They had their own, uh, problems, but they did allow a little bit more freedom. But Rudolf was Catholic and he actually gave Bohemia a letter of majesty, I believe it's called which allowed them to uh, have their own Protestant church and make decisions for themselves. It was it was a very strange thing for uh, someone to do who's a Catholic and connected to the Habsburgs, but he did. Uh, but that would be a disaster later, and we can talk about <laughs> how their decision to have their own way of life actually turned out. You know what strikes me is that the very term bohemian is used in the opera. I think it was Puccini's opera. Uh, it's used in modern times sometimes to refer to the beatnik movement. Sort of people who are on the avant-garde of culture. People who are uh, inclined to think uh, mystically in a materialistic society are called bohemians. And I, I wonder if it goes back to this period. You know, it must. I've, I've thought that too. It must. And we look at it as sort of this side thing that emerges in the real culture, whereas it was actually the heart and soul of who we are. It's, and, but yes, anyone who is able to open up and go a little bit beyond what Western culture has said is reality, then they are Bohemian <laughs> and they can express it in many different ways. But I think it must have. Well, the Rosicrucian uh, 
name is associated with this period because of certain uh, manuscripts that emerged and uh, at this time and were arousing the uh, interest of many people, maybe I would say inspiring them. Oh, yes, it did. It was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, They say that these manuscripts, the fame is one and confessions another, and then they wrote uh, The Chemical Wedding. Uh, But they say that these manuscripts were only to be uh, passed around among people they knew, and somehow they leaked. (laughs) But I don't know whether that was true or not. But yes, it was about Christian Rosenkreuz, a man who had been born in the 13th century, a story really of here is someone who carried our heritage who carried the underground tradition, and he was a healer. And of course, that's one thing that uh, this tradition says. If you live by the laws of nature and understand your laws are synchronized with them, you can heal. So uh, they felt that it had been a few generations since he died, and they had kept that tradition going, supposedly, of eight uh, healers. Uh, and that now it was time for it to surface, for everyone to know this tradition. And of course, people tried to get in touch with them, but they couldn't. They never could get in touch. But it really excited uh, so many people all the way from England to Bohemia. And that was just, it, it was just like a, a, a living excitement, you can imagine, just beneath the surface and rising to the surface. And people were kind of ready for something like that. There, there was also a political element to it in the, in the sense that they, they were suggesting that there is a higher culture than the one that is being afforded to us through the church and through the state, that uh, we could really revolutionize society as a whole, and it could be based on more authentic principles, both spiritual and scientific. Yes, they definitely, that is the heart and soul of who they were. And so when James I allowed his daughter to marry Friedrich in Heidelberg, uh, Europe started really getting excited because this meant that they would still have what Elizabeth gave them, Queen Elizabeth, and that would be the protection of the crown. And they could have uh, Protestantism, which would give them freedom to bring forth this other way of life, as you've described, uh, which would join them, uh, both Catholicism and Protestantism, uh, they would go beyond these dualities. And this was a hope for the whole world. It was just, it was so, it was idealistic and very practical. So when Elizabeth married Friedrich, I think they were 17, (laughs) both of them. And Friedrich uh, in Heidelberg was said to be a mystic and an intellectual. And he had just libraries and wonderful mechanical gardens, engineers, scientists, all of these people came together in Heidelberg. And so when they, uh, the daughter, James first daughter was Elizabeth, when she married uh, Friedrich, there was Europe celebrated. I mean, it was so exciting. There were celebrations all along their way back to Heidelberg. And but there were other things going on. All of this excitement existed within the union of princes in Germany. And when James first married his daughter to Friedrich, he actually joined that union of Protestant princes. And also he gave Friedrich, his son-in-law, the Order of the Garter, which he wore coming back into Germany, which meant for, for Europe, freedom. They could have the freedom to actually bring forth this renaissance, this new way, more fulfilled more uh, advanced way of living in the world. And it was for everybody. 
And so, however, there were still a lot of, uh, was going on in Bohemia, and they knew that they had to have political power, that they couldn't just depend on hoping that, uh, they had that power because of James I, although they completely gr- thought that James was with them. And so, uh, Christian of Anhalt, I believe it was, he was a major advisor for Friedrich, and he also knew the other German Protestant princes, and he began to, uh, to consult and talk about unifying in Bohemia because they felt they could uh, under Rudolph. Well, by the time they could get around to it, Rudolph was gone, but they still felt that that they could actually make the decision themselves for their own governance, that they could have uh, the Protestant power and they could continue with this renaissance. Because they knew that once Rudolph is gone, they wouldn't have that power. The other Habsburg Catholics would not allow that. Uh, but I think Ferdinand was in. Rudolph was gone by that time. And so there was a lot of talk about encouraging Friedrich to make that step to, uh, that the, uh, electors, they had the, their own electors in Bohemia, that they would elect him king and he could be king of Bohemia. And then they would have that political power, they believe, stretching from, uh, England all the way to Bohemia. And they expected James to support them. Well, James did not support them. And neither did the, uh, the princes, uh, the, Cap- the Protestant princes in Germany once. And, and I can see why they wouldn't. They knew power. <laughs> and I think they sort of wanted him to take the chance. And he, he finally decided to. He was only 23 by that time. And so they did go, Elizabeth and Friedrich. They went to Bohemia. They established the kingdom of Bohemia. He was king and she was queen. And it lasted for one winter. And then, of course, the Habsburgs, they were not going to have that. So they got themselves together and fought uh, at White Mountain. I think it was maybe only an hour <laughs> to defeat them. And and then the Spanish, and here, James first had betrayed them in a way because he married his daughter to a Spanish prince. Well, Spain came in and destroyed Heidelberg. So Elizabeth and Frederick couldn't even go back to Heidelberg. And there was there were documents and papers and research that was simply thrown in the streets and destroyed. And we don't know what happened to the libraries. Were they taken to the Vatican? Nobody knows. But uh, Francis uh, uh, Yates says that here, this beautiful, exquisite Renaissance city was destroyed. And the power of the Protestants also that they had dreamed of so they could bring about this Renaissance was also destroyed. And the two of them, Frederick and Elizabeth, went to the Netherlands. But, uh, and if we think we know how to create lies and propaganda and, and make fun of people, they absolutely destroyed him, uh, in terms of they, the propaganda that the church put forth was so powerful that people even were afraid of mathematicians because that was a very strong part of this tradition. Uh, so, but they just, uh, made, ridiculed him with the, with the order of the garter. Like, what does that matter? Obviously, you were nothing. And then, of course, that was the beginning of the 30 years war. And after 30 years, nobody remembered anything much about that. And certainly it was lost to history that there was this incredible effort to bring forth the the blueprint of our conscious evolution that had been the major roots of who we are. And once again, it was destroyed. 
I'm under the impression that uh, perhaps the marriage of Friedrich and uh, Elizabeth, which which was a very big deal at the time, I recall reading that uh, James pretty much drained the royal treasury of England to uh, create a magnificent wedding, and people saw it as being akin to the alchemical wedding that the Rosicrucian tradition wrote about. Yes, it had all of those levels of, of reality. Yes, they, they celebrated with plays and all types of things all the way, I think, from London to Heidelberg. And there were a lot of hopes. Uh, there were booksellers who knew each other, got together. They were printing alchemical texts. I mean, it was an exciting time, uh, a belief that they could really change the world. And, and then it failed. <laughs> Of course, it was reborn again, but uh, it seems as as we've discussed in our, all of our previous conversations, Betty, it seems as if every time this authentic tradition emerges, it gets pushed back. Yes, it does, because uh, the Roman church was very powerful, and in its, with its connection to the Habsburg Empire, who could stand up against it? And I think that when... Uh, James first, he wasn't going to support his daughter and Friedrich at that point when they were in Bohemia as king and queen. And I think the German princes also saw, what can you do with power like that? I mean, maybe he could have pulled it off, but they, once he did and then it failed, they weren't going to have any part of it. But yes, it, it's very, uh, it's tragic really because what happened at this point when that was so destroyed and their papers and their all of their efforts and their ideals for a world in which the entire human brain with the heart could be developed, that they held that blueprint for a complete and whole development, and they wanted that, that that should be severed, and that even these men who were part of the Invisible College afterwards and supported the Royal Society there again, it the roots were severed. At this point, I think it's so important to know, not only did they fail, but now Europe completely severed the roots and started investigating only rational consciousness. And that's all there was. And so in the 1700s, when uh, the French Enlightenment philosophers came, they very arrogantly, I think, announced that they were the apex of the intellectual world, that everything that came before was nonsense. And here was Vico writing in the 1700s. He was talking about the whole mind and the symbolic mind and uh, and the rational mind. Well, no, everything was nonsense. Everything that came before was a build-up to the development of rational consciousness. And this is, I think, what has so damaged Western consciousness, that that has given us fanatics and fundamentalist and violence and extremism of so many kinds. Uh, and of course, the whole world view that there's nothing but matter. I think that all of the people who came since then have suffered deeply with that kind of worldview because it has cut us off from the reality and importance of symbolic language and that the heart that the heart is the center of who we are, that if we don't allow the opening of the heart, then we will 
we'll develop many forms of not only fundamentalism and fanaticism, but mental illnesses, a lot of mental illness, because the mind needs to be whole in order to be healthy. And that arrogance uh, that the rational mind is superior to every other way of being in the world is still with us today. Yes, yes, it is. And that's one reason I so wanted to write about this, that we would have a better understanding, that I would have a better understanding of how powerful and uh, how much of a blueprint our ancestors uh, held for us and wanted to pass on for us, and that by losing it and then arrogantly behaving as though there was nothing lost, that it was all nonsense anyway, and that it then became the sidebar of history, and we were the ones, the intellectuals. To be an intellectual, you couldn't have anything to do with anything bohemian or to do with that under uh, that underworld of thought. So it was, it was an illness. I think if we could see that, that it, it produced an illness that became Western consciousness, Western culture. And we produced a lot of things. I mean, the, the Enlightenment philosophers had many wonderful ideals, but we can see we can't hold on to them. We can't really maintain uh, the sense of equality and justice and liberty unless we open the heart. And as I recall, when the uh, Habsburgs and, and the other elements of the Catholic Church attacked Friedrich and Elizabeth, they, they, they had to flee. They lived the rest of their life in poverty, and an enormous propaganda campaign was launched against them. I, I recall one illustration in Francis Yates' book where they are depicted as uh, following witchcraft. Yes. Well, yes. And of course, the witch hunts began after that, too. And a terrible, terrible, talk about insanity. There was a lot of, of just mental derangement, you might say. But yes, there was the ugly, ugly, brutal campaign against them. I think it's a, it's an ironic note that Descartes, uh, actually knew, uh, Elizabeth's daughter, who's also named Elizabeth, and they became very good friends. And he even wanted to live near where she was, uh, because they, they just were very, very good friends. And she admired his work, and she evidently was brilliant. But he had actually joined, uh, an army and ended up fighting at White Mountain <laughs> against, uh, Elizabeth and uh, Friedrich. I don't know whether he knew quite what he was fighting about. Uh, and people thought later that he might have been a Rosicrucian, but uh, he made it very clear, no, he wasn't that. It, it's a kind of uh, cloudy about his particular connection, but uh, he did become a good friend of Elizabeth's, the daughter, uh, after that. She was very, very important in his life, and I would like to know more about uh, <laughs> what he really thought about the Rosicrucian movement. In fact, as I recall, he dedicated one of his books to her. Yes, yes. So, what can we say about this period in history and its connection to modern Rosicrucian movements? Uh, do, you, do you have any information about that? You know, I don't know enough about that. Uh, I did have a student who was a member of the Rosicrucian um organization, and it was very visionary, uh, mystical, and they 
really felt that they were in touch with these, uh, uh, this in- invisible college, that they had ways of being in touch with it. So I do know that it carried on that tradition, a visionary tradition, and of course, of, of scientific learning as well. Um, but you know, the Rosicrucians, uh, the third thing that they wrote, the chemical wedding, it's, uh, it really is about an alchemical, uh, bringing together of all these opposites and, uh, centered in the heart. And when later in the 1700s, Goethe read that, uh, he wrote, uh, Das Märchen. I, I think it's usually translated as, just the, a fairy tale. I'm not sure, but it is also an alchemical coming together of all opposites. And people didn't understand what he was doing, but it was a very important connection uh, of his own alchemical uh, literature and experience. And so one could say that uh, the German romantics and later on the uh, English and French romantics were sort of carrying on that uh, authentic esoteric tradition. Well, I think that certainly the English Romantics found it in nature. Uh, for the Germans, it was uh, very important that pietism uh, continued that tradition underground. The alchemical Rosicrucian tradition was stayed alive in Germany much more than it could have in England because it was right there. And uh, so Goethe did, uh, when he came home from the university, uh, just sick at heart. It just wasn't, he couldn't, studying law was not fulfilling him. His mother introduced him to a pietist who really was carrying on that alchemical tradition. So it was still underground. Goethe did study it and become an alchemist, as did Novalis, who had read Goethe's alchemical works when he was uh, in college. And uh, they they then wrote their own blueprint for evolution. And they talked about creating a new mythology. But of course, uh, it's, it's a, that too is a complicated period because Goethe wrote then, what Goethe wrote in Faust was a reflection of what had happened to European man because of all of this suppression. That, that was, here he was, Faust, Mephistopheles, and this was the condition of Western consciousness. It, it's an incredible, beautiful, uh, tragic history of who we have become because of all of the suppression. And I suppose before we conclude, it's worth saying that you regard in many ways the present era to be similar to uh, the, the German Romantic period and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. Yes, uh, the present period is a time of, once again, all of these underground traditions are emerging as they did in Bohemia. Uh, and it's, uh, it's much vaster. More people are involved. I think many people are now studying alchemist, uh, the Kabbalist and the hermeticist and esoteric, if we want to use that word, Christian mystic. I'd rather use that word, mystic Christianity. And there are many people, I think, who are, are being transformed by, by actual experiences that they are having and how it will go we don't know but i think that this period 
I think we have to achieve uh, some type of understanding now because we might not ever have the chance again. I think it's faster. It's, for instance, the very fact, as I say in Merchants of Light, uh, that so many scholars in the last century really brought knowledge of the cave cultures, of the megalithic cultures, of the Egyptian, of the shamanic texts from the pyramid, for instance, and and uh, the first temple tradition and the pre-Socratic. We didn't know all of that before. All of this now, all of these underground traditions have come to the surface, and many people are working with those traditions. So I'm hopeful, but when we look at the darkness and the kind of violence that is possible, both against nature and ourselves, but I think that's another thing to to certainly mention, is that here in this Rosicrucian period, there was such a desire to uh, to understand the laws of nature, and that had been with us from the beginning. We knew, we intuited that we had to live in harmony with the laws of nature and know our own laws so that we could develop this vast universal consciousness that we all are. And then <laughs> that in itself was lost, that that we, we couldn't seem to find that once we, so now I think that if we look at that and we say, well, after the Rosicrucian, it was, we hear all of these things about it, putting nature on the rack and torturing her secrets from her. Well, that was the complete opposite image that could have existed before because you know the secrets of nature through the love of your heart and your unity with nature. And we've really exploited nature from that time on. So we're way off track, you might say, uh, for bringing our nature together with the nature of the cosmos uh, through heart consciousness. But people know about it, and and we've got all of the, uh, you might say, all of the effects of this terrible tragedy again and again of loss. We've got all of those effects, and we have to understand that darkness that developed as a result of that, uh, I think, before we can heal. Uh, and that's why, you know, in the vision that my husband and I had after our son died, it was work on what is decayed. We did an interview with that, is that we have to work on that and understand how did that decay? And and I think that working through that, and even through my husband's vision came the merchants of light. He had certainly never read anything about the Rosicrucian period. And it was only after he died that I, I thought, oh, my goodness, that connection of the, of the merchants of light, are they're still getting their message across. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I think that today is very crucial to try to bring our understanding of what has happened to us as a result and how we can open ourselves to a heart consciousness that is healing, uh, as the Rosicrucians would say, for the whole world. Well, it is paradoxical that uh, Francis Bacon, the British not not the contemporary artist, but the British philosopher of the Re- the Renaissance uh, came up with this phrase, "Merchants of Light," which is the title of one of your books. But he's also the person who wrote that we should put nature on the rack and torture her so she reveals her secrets. And that's a, yeah, was he the one who actually said it? Well, it's an interesting thing because he was very well aware of the Rosicrucians, and he wanted a global. Uh, 
college too, but it was more, I think, going toward the intellectual. So we already see that happening in him. Yes, because he certainly wrote about the merchants of light who uh, wanted to bring that light to the entire planet, but somehow uh, the light of the heart got <laughs> got lost. Yeah, I think he wrote about that in his book, The New Atlantis, didn't he? Yes, he did. The merchants of light were the invisible college for the Rosicrucians. They were the same. And I assume there are merchants of light around today. I hope that I have interviewed a few of them, including yourself. And I think I, I'm certainly not the only person doing media like this, that uh, the internet has created an opportunity for these ideas that get repressed over and over again to uh, become available all across the world. Exactly. And when I look at the people you've interviewed, I mean, you have a library of the merchants of light. I mean, it's just incredible. And yes, before these, in these cultures, how many people could really know what was going on? Not too many. And now anyone can tune into it. And I think that this is a cause for great hope. And as you had said once, that you would hope that all of us could just find a way to be the best of who we are, to give uh, what it is, as a Native Americans say, each of us comes to create a particular medicine for the world. And that so that would be to create the best we can to give the world, and you're giving it an outlet to get to the world. That's a, a great gift, a great gift. Well, I'm very grateful, Betty, that I have uh, people such as yourself to share with our viewing audience. This has been, yet again, another wonderful conversation. I certainly encourage our viewers to check out your books, Merchants of Light and Miracle of Death. The Miracle of Death, There is Nothing But Life. And uh, I look forward to future conversations with you, Betty. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.